Hello and welcome back to another year and another episode of Ballad to Talk About. This week, we'll be looking ahead to at the year that is 2024 in politics and elections and asking the big question, will the anti-incumbency mood that we saw in 2023 continue into 2024? It is Sunday, the 7th of January, 2024. Pledge to be a president who seeks not to divide, but unify. Not now. I am a fighter and not a fighter. It's time for a change in this country, my friends. A real change. Let's keep moving. Slava Ukraine! And joining me as always is my co-host Sam. Well, Sam, are you ready to kick off what is expected to be a very busy political year? Yes, well, Happy New Year to start off with. Um, hope you had a lovely festive season. It's very nice to be back. But yes, you're exactly right. It's going to be an immensely busy political year churn with um, 75% of global democracies up for election um, in more than 60 countries, which represents more than half of the entire global population. So. That's the volume of people. Four billion people will be voting in presidential, legislative or local elections this year. So quite a year. And it includes, isn't it, Sam, the two countries, or in fact, in my case, the two states in which you and I are talking, um, are speaking to you from, isn't it? Well, exactly, exactly, amongst others. So, yeah. Looking forward to getting stuck in, and as we said at the, as you said at the top turn, this week we'll be taking sort of a whistle-stop tour through what's to come, signposting some of the things for people who want to maybe mark the dates in their electoral calendars, but and talking about some of the themes that might arise as we um, journey through twenty twenty four. Yes, indeed, and I think it's important at this stage where and for long time listeners of this podcast will be doing it. The analysis will be similarly done for what we did last year, where we analysed it by continental regions. So that's how we'll be looking at what are the most exciting elections in Asia, North and South Americas, um, Europe, as always. So that's how we'll be doing that. But before we dive into the individual continents, I thought it is worth setting the scene, particularly in many of these countries, um, that last went to the poll. So in countries with fixed terms, we're not, we're, we're not assuming any snap elections whatsoever. These elections that are taking place in 2024 were largely contested in 2019 for those with five-year terms and 2020, those with four-year terms. And so for voters who last went to the polls in 2019, places like in the UK, this will be the first opportunity to cast judgment on their governments who has led them through the COVID-19 pandemic, the war in Ukraine, the ongoing conflict in the Middle East, the rise in interest rates, and all the politics and economics that's taken place in the last four years. And there has been what feels like a lot more politics and elections and global events over the last four years than I can certainly remember. And for voters who last went to the polls in 2020, the context for many of these governments as well was that there was a strong rally around the flag effect as voters at that stage largely approved of their government's initial approach to tackling the pandemic. So they're often sitting on quite comfortable majorities, for example. And this is the first time where we've really seen the downturn in economic conditions and the cost of living prices, they will come and play out. So I think those that caveat will probably apply to a few of these countries that last went to the polls in 2020. So let's start by diving into what are talking about some of the most exciting and most consequential elections. And Sam, would you not agree we cannot look past North and South America because arguably the biggest and most important election of the year is, of course, it's an even year. It's four years on, Joe Biden seeking re-election as president of the United States, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, this is sort of the highlight of the electoral calendar for most political observers, certainly for most journalists. It's a very consequential election. It's a very high profile election, especially considering we're 
widely expecting, barring any significant surprises, it to be a rematch of the hotly contested 2020 presidential election between Joe Biden, the incumbent president of the United States, and Donald Trump, the previous president of the United States. So, yes, and it will have huge consequences, not just for American democracy, but the international political scene as well, and, and geopolitical consequences that spread far beyond the borders of the US. Um, and Chen, for us as well, this was where it all began four years ago. So it's quite a big full circle moment to be covering another US presidential election, even if the personalities at the top of it are identical. To be honest, I think it was largely us exchanging long texts about the US presidential election that got us to start podcasting way back in the depths of the pandemic. But the one thing that you said that struck me was as I was starting this year is that particularly in the US, can I certainly in modern memory, I can't recall the last time in which the two candidates for the president of the United States, both an incumbent and the previous occupant, because often when one president seeks re-election, um, the other candidate the, even and defeats a one-term president, you, the, the candidate nominated next time round is not usually the former president. I'm thinking, for example, uh, the George H.W. Bush and Jimmy Carter both didn't run in the next presidential election that they lost in 1980 and 1996. The Democratic yeah. Party and the Republican Party weren't nominating other candidates. So this is also historic for seeing that president versus former president Dynamic, I mean, I think it? I think quite famously, there's only one example in American history where that's happened, which was 1892, when Grover Cleveland retook the presidency from Benjamin Harrison, who he faced in that presidential election. So Grover Cleveland famously is the only president to serve two non-consecutive terms, and Donald Trump is aiming to become the second. Well, there you go. So the question is, is will history repeat itself later this year as well? And not only that, because whoever is elected the next president, I'm sure, would you not agree with me, Sam, they also will be paying attention to events further down the ticket in terms of their ability to get stuff done, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, I, Chen, I don't know if you agree, but I think the House race is going to be pretty competitive. I think if Joe Biden performs reasonably well on the ticket, I would expect the Democrats to reclaim the House of Representatives. But... I think it's incredibly likely that the Republican Party either claim the Senate or bring it back to 50-50 and it all hinges on the presidency. Because looking at this map, I mean, the Democrats need to defend everything, bar one. I mean, West Virginia is going to be an inevitable loss, I think, now that Joe Manchin is, is standing down. And they're going to need Ruben Gallego to win in Arizona. They're going to need Sherrod Brown to retain Ohio, John Tester to retain Montana. And that's not even bringing into the picture Jackie Rosen in Nevada, Bob Casey Jr., Pennsylvania, Tammy Baldwin in Wisconsin, and whoever ends up being Debbie Stabenow's replacement candidate in Michigan. So we're going to see the presidential cycle, I think, fueling quite a lot of this campaign. But there are zero viable pickup opportunities for the Democrats. So it's full on defense mode. Um, and a lot could hinge on that because if Joe Biden does get reelected and is facing a completely Republican Congress, it will be gridlock for another four years. Well, actually, um, just a couple of points I would like to make. Firstly, on the Senate side, it's likely that the representative Alicia Slotkin, current the House, uh, she's kind of cleared the field in the Democratic primary. So she's likely to be Debbie Stabenow's replacement um, as a Senate candidate in Michigan. But I think particularly the Senate and why the situation is so difficult for the Democrats is that particularly in recent years, and particularly given the fact it's a presidential election year, that there is a lot less split ticketing. So the idea is that People nowadays, a lot of people, more people in the United States, if they vote Democratic for president, they vote down the ticket Democratic and vice versa as well. Um, which makes some of these some of these states, which are naturally so Republican leaning, incredibly challenging for incumbent Democrats to um to hold on. And that is, of course, um the, the most obvious case is West Virginia, where Joe Manchin, even if he did stand, was almost certain to probably lose. And that's why he probably decided not to stand given the Republicans are fielding the outgoing governor, Jim Justice, himself a former Democrat, 
as the Republican candidate for Senate. So he's a credible candidate in in a in a very ruby red state. So um, with less split ticketing, it's almost inevitable that seat was lost. And then you've got Ohio and Montana. Now, both, if you recall, Sam, Montana, two years ago, four years ago, the former governor, Steve Buller, who was a, at one point a presidential candidate for the Democrat in the Democratic primary of 2020, he stood for the Senate. Now, he was able to get re-elected governor in presidential election years. But when it came for trying to win a Senate seat, he lost and it wasn't even a close race. So that's going to be incredibly problematic for both John Tester and Sherrod Brown in Montana and Ohio, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, I think the Democrats will be pretty thankful that they have two incumbents in those states because incumbents do tend to at least boost the performance of that party by a couple of points. And that could make all the difference in this cycle. But certainly it's an uphill climb for the Democrats on the Senate side. Do you think as well that uh, on the what does it say about in particular the fact that Michigan, Pennsylvania, you know, these are battleground states, but they're not really considered as part of the electoral, the big electoral map. What does that say about these Democratic incumbents or be the inability of Republicans to find a good candidate? Well, we've seen actually, aside from presidential elections, it seemingly competitive races in all of these states um, in the last few cycles. We've seen, we saw a hotly contested Senate race in Pennsylvania just two years ago. Um, we saw, obviously, a reasonably competitive um, Senate race in Wisconsin, which the Republicans ended up winning there. But actually, a lot of these battles have gone the Democrats' way. So whilst they have been key, key states on the presidential side, particularly on the congressional side and the gubernatorial side, we're seeing in the majority of cases the Democrats just having the edge, which is why I kind of expect your Bob Casey Juniors, your Tammy Baldwins and your Alyssa Slotkins to be reasonably comfortable, whatever happens on the presidential side. But this could be an incredibly polarizing, minimal split ticketing election. So we will really have to see. Um, I think the margin between I think the difference between the Democrat and Republican votes on the presidential side and the Senate side will be pretty minimal. Um, so they could become a victim of what's going on at the top of the ticket. I'm conscious, Sam, that this is not a US podcast. We'll be coming back to the United States a lot over the next couple of months. And as particularly as the Republican primary starts to kick off in a week's time. So let's look around the region, Sorry, Sam. Um, what other elections will you be keeping out of um, in terms of other elections that will be following on this podcast? Well, I think the other big one in the Americas has to be Mexico. One of the themes of this year is that seven of the 10 most populous countries in the world will be holding elections this year. And one of those is the United States. Another of those is Mexico, which is likely to elect their first female president this year because the incumbent president, um, AMLO for short, uh, is not running for re-election. And the new face of his Morena party is Claudia Scheinbaum, who I think is the favourite for this election. She's a scientist and former mayor of Mexico City. Main rival is Chito Galvez running for the National Action Party. Um, talking about it's going to be dominated by discussions of combating drug um drug violence, uh, record murder numbers. Um, candidates are now arguing over strategies for dealing with those things. But I think um, Claudia Scheinbaum is nonetheless the front runner for this election. But big moment in Mexico's history, getting its first female president. Yeah, exactly. And this is one of the rare elections that we had talked about, where it's two women running for the top job. So we're almost certain to get Mexico's fem first female president either whoever wins. And you're right, Claudia um, Shipburn, who is the uh, who is the ruling party's candidate to repress uh, Andres uh, Manuel Lopez Obrador, or AMLO, as he's commonly known, uh, to replace him, which would be quite a historic moment. I will say this, though, um, and I think it speaks to a theme in which we've been covering, is 
this uh, Morena is the car is the party of the incumbent president, and Shalicho Galvez represents Pan, who is the one of the main conservative political parties in Mexico. The one party we are, haven't talked about is the Institutional Republican Revolution Party, and and to say Sam they have dominated Mexican elections is an understatement. I'm looking at their list of presidents that they've uh, since 1929 the PRI has elected as candidate has become president every election since 2000. So that is so they've dominated Mexican politics and the fact that they are now they're supporting another coalition party's candidate and historic rival of them um, is quite significant to and it does show to me that a lot of the turmoil we talk about traditional parties in many countries declining over time. Look at all the other parties in Europe that we have talked about in recent past. We're seeing this in Mexico, haven't we, as well? Yeah, I mean, for sure. And I think it's worth saying that Morning Consult published their global leader approval ratings just before Christmas. And Narendra Modi, who we're going to be talking about in a second, was number one, of course, in I think it was like 76% approval. But the second place was AMLO um, on, I think, mid 60% approval rating. So it's a very popular incumbent president leaving the scene of Mexican politics. Um, and it'll be interesting to see what fills that void. Exactly. And to show you, I just I just found a fun fact. The last president that the PRI provided, which was uh, AMLO's predecessor, uh, Enrique Pina Nieto, um, and apparently in a survey conducted by Elm Universal, 78% of Mexicans wanted the former president's face trial, with Pina Nieto the only one, the one they wanted to be incarcerated the most. So I just thought that was a fun fact to show you that the real dis that it, it seems to be a self-inflicted demise. The unpopularity of the film administration has meant that they really were knocked down in the 2018 election and they are knocked down in the 2024 election as well. And so that election in Mexico will be taking place on the 2nd of June. And elsewhere in the region, we've also got elections in um, El Salvador in Central America. We've got a Uruguayan general election in October. We've also got the Panamanian election taking place on the 5th of May as well. So quite a few democratic exercises around the region. And actually, all three countries, their presidents are constitutionally term limited. So... You can't Panama. serve consecutive terms, yeah. Well, apart from El Salvador, isn't it? Indeed, indeed. But yet, what we're seeing in El Salvador is the incumbent president trying to get a second term. And it, it seems in all accounts, the, the so-called dubbed the world's coolest dictator might well get an unprecedented second term as president of El Salvador, isn't it? Yes, so a lot to be watching for in Central and Southern America. Exactly. So whilst in Southern America, we've, it's likely to be a bit more quiet, all action will be in the northern bit of America as two big countries go to the polls. And of course, we'll come back to the eternal question. And this is something that we'll probably ask um, and for listeners to keep on listening to is that Sam and I have, we have come up with four political predictions that we'll revisit at our last podcast here to find out which is any is true. Because obviously, We've also got Canada in the eternal question of will it go to the polls this year? So we'll stay tuned to listen to those views on whether we think Canada will hold an election this year. But let's move across the Atlantic, Sam, because it is also likely to be an extremely busy period of national elections in Europe, isn't it? Well, you say national elections. I think one of the biggest democratic exercises in Europe is actually the European Parliament elections, which is one of the biggest democratic exercises in the world for the European Parliament. Um, but aside from that, we've got a UK general election, all but certain to happen. We've got national elections in Portugal, Austria, Belgium, Croatia, Lithuania, um, Moldova. We've got state elections in Germany. We've got some more state elections to hoover up in Spain. And that's not even talking about some countries that might go to the polls unexpectedly later this year. So it's absolutely packed in Europe, Chern. Do you want to start with the UK or do you want to start with the European Parliament? Well, let's, hope, let's start with the UK. Are, are you sure Richie Sunak, given the state of the polls, is not going to opt for a January 2025 election? 
I would be immensely surprised. But funnily enough, Chan, I was listening to um, Pod Save the UK, which is done by Crooked Media, hosted by Nish Kumar. And they were saying that if Rishi Sunak does put the election in January 2025, we should just agree unilaterally that 2024 is 13 months long. And we still say it's the 2024 general election. Indeed. And of course, this is, um, and, you know, the context of the UK election was that um, you and I will remember it both because we both voted in the 2019 UK election. It was absolutely pouring with rain in that December, that historic December election which delivered a landslide victory for the Conservatives. And we've seen, particularly over the last two years, as the Conservative Party seemingly has pressed the self-destruct button many times over numerous policies and leadership turmoils, that the British people have seemed to be stopped listening to the Conservative Party. The party, last year, as we said in our review of 2023, started the year with the exact same chair to vote in the polls as they did at the start of January 2023 and December 2023. And it seems like January 2024, Sam, it seems the British people have sort of made up their minds about this Conservative government, haven't they? Well, yeah, I think so. I mean, we talked about it in our review of the year in UK politics is that one of the remarkable facets of British politics last year, I think, was that the year started and ended with a very similar state in the opinion polls and 2024 has again started with a very similar state in the opinion polls so barring any significant surprises i think we're going to be expecting some version of a labor victory in this general election and keir starmer becoming prime minister by the end of the year so that will be quite a significant change in uk politics because the conservatives have now been in power for well it will be 14 years at that point and quite a lot of people have never voted in a general election that Labour have gone on to win. So it's quite a generational shift, I think, in the UK as well. And the UK not only has the general election this year, but we've got local elections in May as well. And I think there's some interesting races on the table there. I mean, we've got the West Midlands mayoral race, which I think will be pretty interesting because Andy Street has made no secret of trying to distance himself from the national Conservative Party, but yet the West Midlands is home to some of the classically marginal seats in the pre-2010 political world. So are we going to see some shifts there? We've got the London mayoral election, we've got the Tees Valley mayoral election. So we've got sort of UK themes plotted throughout the year, even if the general election does end up taking place in the winter. Well, you talk about Labour voters not being able to vote for the winner. If you were if you turn 18 by the 1979 general election, so you frankly will have to be born in the early 60s, Labour's only won three elections out of the 11 since it takes place. So this could be a historic, um, Keir Starmer will make history as one of the few Labour leaders who has led their party into government. So joining quite a small but illustrious list. So this is quite an opportunity for Labour. And you talked about some of the more interesting races like uh, West Midlands, Tees Valley. Don't forget as well that this year we'll also see the big metropolitan mayors also out for election. They probably will easily coast to re-election, but Greater Manchester, Andy Burnham is also up for ele election again this year. Sadiq Khan, mayor of London, the, one of the biggest mayoral prize in the world, actually, the London mayorship election. And it seemed until until I, I until the last poll I saw, it seemed that he might be in a little bit more trouble than London's traditional political leanings would suggest. I wonder how much of it is saved by the fact that it's a national anti-conservative mood running through the country, and therefore voters as a Labour mayor might be more willing to vote, hold their nose and vote for him. Do you buy that, Sam? I think that tells part of the story, but I think the other part of the story has to be the pretty catastrophic candidacy on the conservative side so i think there are two stories going on here and we also can't forget as well that there are new mayors in east midlands the northeast and um a, a place called york and north yorkshire who are also electing mayors as well aren't they we are indeed um i'm sure you have views on which is the most important but uh <laughs> let's 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 move on um from the uk and talk about the european parliament elections because this is going to be a huge series of elections and 
Um, Sam and I also are beginning to think about how on earth we're going to cover the European Parliament elections because am I right in saying, Sam, it's one of the biggest parliaments in the world, the European Parliament? Yeah, certainly. And, and certainly in terms of the electorate that will be going to vote for this, because of course, this takes place across all of the EU's member states. It will be the first set of European parliamentary elections without the UK's participation. So we'll have completely new apportionment of the seats. There will be a huge amount of domestic political upheaval that could filter through into the European Parliament for the first time, because since 2019, European domestic politics has transformed pretty significantly. I mean, you talk about Germany. The AFD are now second, at least, in most opinion polls. That has never been the case before. We've got a completely changed French landscape now. We've got um, the Poland Law and Justice Party are not as big as they used to be. The complete transformation of the far right in Italy. Gert Wilders, of course, winning the recent Dutch parliamentary election. These are some of the biggest countries in the European Union who are completely different politically than they were five years ago. So in terms of the kind of grouping representations we could see in the European Parliament on a big scale could be quite seismically different than ones we've seen in the past. And I think the European Parliament is gearing up for having to have pretty high profile commissioners from blocks that they've traditionally treated as fringe blocks in the European Parliament. So this could be a pretty testy time for the European Parliament. I think that's a perfectly valid way to see. I think I just want to elaborate two countries here. One of them is Spain, one of the big countries in the European Parliament. Um, I can tell you that in the last election in 2019, the Citizens Party won seven out of the 59 seats in that election. And we're almost certain, Sam, to see all entire seven representatives lose their seats. Um, and, and the other country I wanted to point out is Italy, because Italy's political landscape has fundamentally transformed over the last five years. We saw in, 20, in 2019, the Liga party, so that's the lead party led by Matteo Salvini, he won 28 out of the 76 seats there and was by far the largest party in the parliament. Well, the, by contrast, Brothers of Italy had five out of the 76 seats. So even Forza Italia, which was led by Silvio Berlusconi, had more seats at six. So I think among the centre-right, in Italy, there could be a redistribution away from the European People's Party to much more extreme elements uh, to the benefit yeah. of the European Conservatives, for example. And in Spain, the People's Party did absolutely poorly there. So we're going to see some of the vote for the Citizens Party and the Renew Group move to the EPP. So I think those are two countries that I point out that we'll almost certainly see big political change there. And the other, of course, is the Netherlands, because... Um, for example, I see here is the Labour Party, I suspect, thanks to the candidacy of Franz Timmermans, won six seats in the net in the Dutch Parliament. I want yes, they post six out of 26 seats. I wonder whether they can still maintain that same stranglehold of those six seats without Franz Timmermans on mm. the ticket. Do you mm. think they can? Well, I think I think the Netherlands will be a big story. Obviously, Gert Wilders, one of his key political political ambitions in the Netherlands has been criticising the European Union's involvement in the Netherlands. And I think that those type of parties tend to do pretty well in European parliamentary elections where everything's talking about the EU's role in that country. So will he carry forward his success from the back end of last year into the European parliamentary elections? I suspect so. And I think institutionally as well, for the European Parliament, this is a big cycle because it will probably be the third time that the Spitzenkandidaten process completely falls apart and they fail to elect a commission president that is one of the Spitzenkandidats. Von der Leyen, Ursula von der Leyen, has been conspicuously silent on her future as commission president and whether she will renominate herself. Um, but we, of course, have Manfred Weber once again as the candidate for the European People's Party. But... It will be interesting to see what comes next for how the European Parliament decides to elect its Commission President, because clearly this process is not working, um, and this may well be the last cycle we see it happen. Well, here's a fun fact about the Netherlands. How many MEPs does Geertwilder's PVV have? And remember, the Netherlands has 26 seats. Zero. Zero? Wow. Yes. They failed to even get a quota last time round, so 
definite change we're going to see in the Dutch political scene that I suspect, in particular, if the Dutch haven't formed a government by May, which is entirely possible. Um, but we'll come back to the Netherlands a little bit later. Um, I think you're absolutely right. The, the, the fate of the Spitzen candidate process is also will be severely tested there. And I think the relative power of the European Parliament versus the European Council, which is where the heads of states or the very heads of government lie, I think will be an interesting dynamic. We saw a breakdown in trust five years ago. Let's find out whether this time around there is that same breakdown in trust. That will be interesting to see. Do you have any idea in terms of, I think what we'll see in general in Europe is a general movement away from the three big political families, that is the Social Democrats, the Renew Group represents centrist parties in the EPP, to further left, further right elements as reflecting greater polarization in many member state countries. We talked about the EPP nominating as their Splitson candidate, but what are some of the other political families at this stage you see nominating as Splitson candidate? Yeah, I mean, the, the some of the um, electoral alliances in the European Parliament have quite a complicated relationship with the Spitzenkandidaten process. For example, the European, the European group of conservatives and reformists have said they won't be nominating a Spitzenkandidaten, but they're incredibly likely to be one of the key blocks coming out of this election, mainly because they're home to Giorgio Maloney's Brothers of Italy party, who are likely to do very well in this cycle and um, also our home of the Law and Justice Party in Poland, who are likely to do reasonably well, I would suspect, in this election, if, they, if indeed they don't do particularly as well as they did previously. Um, the, social, the Progressive Alliance of Socialists and Democrats, I suspect, will nominate somebody, um, and the Alliance of um, Liberals and Democrats will be appointing one in the coming weeks as well. So... We are likely to see a handful of Spitzenkandidaten, but again, a bit like last time, I wouldn't pay too much attention to it because I suspect, as we saw last time, probably none of these people will end up being commission president. Well, let's all to find out, and not only that European Parliament elections uh, encompassing the entire Europe, there are also national elections taking place. And some of these countries, Portugal, Austria, Belgium, Croatia, Lithuania, they're pretty significant, some of these across the board, isn't it? And they're spread all across Europe, from west to east. Indeed, just to pick up on a few of them, I mean, Portugal, Chern, we, it, it doesn't feel like that long ago that we covered the last Portuguese general election. But of course, as we'll come on to talk about in the next few weeks' worth of podcasts, everything unraveled quite quickly for Antonio Costa in the back end of last year, despite just in January 2022, winning what a lot of people perceive to be a pretty su astonishing majority government um, for his party in Portugal. And I think his party are poised to do reasonably well again, but certainly not as well as they did last time. And it's much more competitive. So a lot of eyes will be on Portugal, especially in the wake of that pretty significant corruption scandal against the prime minister. And also Austria, I think, is fascinating churn as well, because it's Karl Niehammer's first electoral test as chancellor. Obviously, since then, since the last election, his predecessor, Sebastian Kurz, has been charged with providing false statements as a parliamentary investigation committee. And the Freedom Party of Austria are poised to do incredibly well and top the polls for the first time ever. Yet another right to far right populist party doing pretty well in Austria and what comes next we'll have to wait and see because who knows whether the Socialist Party or the LVP the Austrian People's Party will be prepared to work with them so could be an interesting dynamic in Austria. I think just on the Portugal front I, I was a bit puzzled because you had that historic majority for Antonio Costa and the Socialist Party. And the, the majority is not to Antonio Costa. It's just a, in a parliamentary system. It is to the Socialist Party. And if they control the part numbers in parliament, why can't they nominate another prime minister to replace them? And why did they go to a staff election? And the reason I found out is that the president of Portugal has quite a lot of powers that are vested in him. It is a it is a much more powerful executive presidency than other countries in the region. And the other, and I suspect as well, is that the current president is a social democrat, so belonging to the center-right social democrat. So I think that played a significant factor because I was quite surprised about 
A, things unraveling, but B, the fact we're talking about Portuguese selection in the first place. Were you as surprised as me, Sam? Yeah, I mean, I was absolutely shocked when I saw Antonio Costa's snap resignation following the raiding of his house. And then, yeah, as you said, you would have thought a party with that kind of command of the legislature would be able to cobble together a replacement. But I think it was one of those things that the things that Antonio Costa was being um, complicit in sort of has just fed down into the rest of the party. I mean, in the last term since January 2022, there have been 11 secretaries of state resign over various issues. And I think the president probably deemed it to be just, it's time to take this back to the country because what is going on at the top of Portuguese politics is just a bit of a mess. Um, so I am surprised, but at the same time, the kind of disintegration in party discipline was was too extraordinary to continue, I think. And the same thing you could argue applies to Austria, because I think both parties will see the incumbent socialists will almost certainly lose their majority in Portugal, and the People's Party will almost certainly not even be first nor second, nor maybe even third place in Austria in the Austrian election. And therefore, I think the question that I've seen in both these elections, and in fact in many other elections in Europe, is to what extent is the traditional centre-right party, so the Social Democrats in Portugal, the People's Party in Austria, or um, are willing to work with more radical right-wing parties for them to form a government. I think it's been one of the taboo questions. It's kind of been a, you know, we've seen in some countries there be a coalition of centre parties to keep the radical parties out to limited success, I would argue. But I definitely think this year could be a real year where we build on 2023 and we see the more far-right parties not only just taking up supporting a centre-right government, but actually leading a government in many cases, mm, like mm. could be the case in Austria, isn't it? Yeah, and I think some other big tests of this, which I think serves as sort of a key, serves as sort of like a really um, powerful indicator of how much this relationship has changed, is Germany, because Germany this year will have three state elections, Saxony, Thuringia and Brandenburg, in which, at the moment, the AFD are poised to come first place in every single one of them. And that is going to have to lead to quite serious conversations amongst the CDU in how they relate to them. And then you contrast that to five years ago, where the same thing happened in Thuringia, where the AFD were a key player after the election, and the CDU working with them led to the complete disintegration of the height of CDU federal politics with the resignation of Annegret Kramp-Karrenbauer after the absolute mess that was the election of Thomas Kemmerich as Minister President of Thuringia. So the sort of the transformation in how German politics views the AFD in five years in that one state, I think is pretty, tells a big story about how this year's politics are going to happen because with the AFD winning these elections, they're going to have to work with them because they will do even better if they're shut out of government despite winning. I will say this, though. Two of the states, so all three German states, are defended by different parties holding the minister presidency. Brandenburg is the Social Democrats, Thuringia is the link, the linker, and the CDU controls is defending in Saxony. And it seems like Saxony is probably the biggest opportunity for the incumbent minister-president to hold on. Um, largely, I suspect, because he's from the opposition CDU. I think it's more a plot against the centre-left in general, left-wing in general, what I can see these elections in East Germany. And that brings me on to a wider theme, Sam, because I'm looking at the elections in, to a lesser extent, Portugal, but certainly in Austria, in Lithuania, in Germany, there is a strong chance that anti-incumbent, there will be a change in government not only for minister president stepping down because they reached the end of their terms, but a change in ideological direction of the country, isn't it? Because it seems that many opposition parties are still doing well, like many of their 20, many of the countries that went to the polls in 2023. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, Croatia, yes, the Democratic Union Party are probably going to remain first place in this election, as they have done for the last three consecutive elections. But they might have to work with an increasingly right wing 
collection of potential coalition partners in having to work with the socially conservative the bridge which they didn't have to do in the last cycle so even in examples where you might not change the incumbent party or even the incumbent prime minister you might change the ideological direction of that party indeed so lots of interesting things in europe to to keep an eye on and i think one of the un untold stories is we've got a couple of elections i'm looking at those EU candidate countries as well. So we've got Moldova, we've got North Macedonia as well. And I think in these countries, what we're gonna see is whether the appeal of the EU is very different for countries who are outside the EU looking in versus for countries already in the EU, isn't it? Well, the big one I think is Moldova's presidential election. Again, quite special for us because it was one of the first non-US countries we covered on this podcast, but Maya Sandu's election, pretty commanding election as president in 2020, completely changed the direction of Moldova as a country. I mean, she was much more pro-European than her predecessor, Igor Dodon, who she defeated in 2020. And since then, we just had in December, the EU grant accession negotiations for Moldova. So her re-election campaign could be the key to those negotiations continuing because I suspect if Igor Dodon, who is widely expected to run again, wins that election, I think those negotiations will begin to stall if not completely disintegrate. So it could be a big moment for Moldova's political direction. And again, it builds on something that we talked about in our review of 23, is that these elections are often between you have the choice of two candidates or two parties with wildly different views in how they see the world in terms of policy, domestic and foreign policy, because I suspect Russia's and Europe's view of Moldova may change quite drastically depending on who is elected after Moldova's presidential election, isn't it? Yeah, I'm getting very excited for the political year ahead, Chen. Indeed. And that's not even talking about the last big region we're going to talk about. Now, I, I, uh, which is the Asia-Pacific region. Now, we talk about populist countries going for election. There is one big, there are two big populist countries going for massive elections. One of them is taking place in one month's time, isn't it? Yeah, which is Indonesia, which is the world's largest single day election when that takes place in February. And then a few months later- On Valentine's Day, actually. Well, exactly. Um, and then a few months later, we have- the single largest democratic exercise in the world, albeit this does not take place on a single day, but actually over the course of a few weeks, which is India's Lok Sabha election, the general election, which is a huge democratic exercise internationally. So huge stories coming out of the Asia Pacific, even if, particularly on the Indian side, the result doesn't seem in question, but nonetheless, it's a huge story. I, I, I absolutely agree with you. I think it is a it is a very, very huge country. And of course, there are Indian state elections that will be taking place, which we also will be covering as well um, on this podcast as well. And nonetheless, you know, I think the big question, if I look at both uh, India and to a lesser extent, Indonesia, and certainly the country that is going for elections this weekend, Bangladesh, is what is the state of democracy in 2024? Because I think that's a big question that, there have been accusations that some of these countries are covered. I'm thinking El Salvador, India, to a lesser extent, certainly Bangladesh, that their democratic credentials have been questioned by many people. Is this a year in which, as the economists put it, democracy is in peril, you think? I think, I think that's a pretty fair comment. I mean, even including somewhere like the US, I mean, Donald Trump's vision of American democracy is wildly different to the vision of Joe Biden's. And a lot of people seem to think even the possibility of him being on the ballot is a threat to American democracy. And then you've got Modi. I mean, it's generally um, stated as a fact that there's been autocratic tendencies and democratic backsliding in India and the way that Modi runs his administration and the people around him run the administration. Bangladesh, Sheikh Hasina, will be running for another term and the opposition aren't even taking part in this election. They're boycotting it completely because of what they see as autocratic tendencies and blatant democratic backsliding. So yeah, it's 
I think it is a big year for democracies, to be honest, um, not just because of the volume of elections taking place, but also the, the stakes involved in these elections taking place and what they mean for years ahead and geopolitics. I mean, it's a little bit of a spoiler, but at the end, Chen and I were going to ask each other what we think could be the themes of the year. And one of my big themes really is I think a lot of these elections in the moment and in the campaigns will feel like very domestic focused elections because there's a lot of bread and butter issues on the table this year, which is the economy, healthcare, education, public services, etc. But once the election has taken place, a lot of these countries and the elections happening could have pretty seismic impacts beyond their own borders. The US. Donald Trump would completely change American foreign policy to Joe Biden. Taiwan, which we'll talk about in a second, could lead to, I mean, a, a military invasion. And then you've got India, who, yes, we're expecting Modi to continue in power, but his relationship with other countries could begin to change or evolve or harden because of how much power has been installed in him as the seat of Indian government. So a lot of domestic elections, but a lot of international consequences. And not only small countries, not only big countries as well, small countries as well, because Bangladesh, for example, uh, Sheikh Hasina is a very close ally of India, largely due to a family history of India helping out when her father was a former prime minister and president, and his and her entire family was assassinated. India provided a safe haven, India's role in Bangladesh as well, compared to and China is, mm, of mm. course, looking at Bangladesh with a lot of interest as well. well so and, and Germany, big Germany doesn't even have a federal election this year, or probably won't have a federal election this year. But you could still see three state elections completely change the way Germany engages with the rest of the world, because you've got Olaf Scholz, his chancellery is on the rocks. And if you've got big federal political parties trying to deal with an insurgent AFD, that could completely change the dynamics of Germany's foreign policy, particularly its role within the European Union, if you've got a threat to the European Union insurgent within it. I think, and, and not only that as well, is that you, you talk about the power of state elections. I think in Australia, at least, and in Canada, they both have state elections. If I look at Australia, for example, we want the Liberal National Party, which has been out of power since they lost power in 2022, will be looking to Queensland and to a lesser extent the Northern Territory for in performance of how the LNP and the country Liberals do in terms of whether they can start rebuilding from what was a quite devastating election defeat in the last federal election. So state elections will have the power to shape the federal conversation as well. And of course, you've got Justin Trudeau in Canada. In Canada, both, I mean, October seems to be a month of absolute blockbusters for both uh, Australian state elections, which the ACT on the 19th, Queensland on the 26th. In Canada, I've got, we've got the British Columbia state election on the 19th, the New Brunswick state election on the 21st, and we've also got the Saskatchewan state election on the 28th of October. So it seems to be a month of state elections and three of them, the Liberals are not a non-entity in Saskatchewan. The, the, the what is what used to be the Liberals looks set to be in for whacking in British Columbia, but they may have hope in New Brunswick. So it seems to be even in Canada, Justin Trudeau's fortunes might, whilst there's a divorce, we often say between state elections and federal elections, the performance of the federal government could very much influence state politics. And the outcome mm. of the state elections could re could ironically then shape federal politics again. So very fascinating subnational lectures we will cover on this podcast as well. Absolutely. And Chen, I mentioned Taiwan. I'm hesitant to go too much into it because we will be talking about it within a matter of weeks because it takes place in just just in fact just over one week's time. Um, but nonetheless, a pretty seismic election in a very small nation in the world as well. Indeed. And as some of us might be going on holiday soon, I think we'll be keen to find out who exactly the new president is. So, yes, we'll be looking at the Taiwan elections in close detail. And I suspect the big superpowers will also be looking at the Taiwanese election. Um, Sam, time, we will be, obviously, as the year goes on, we'll be diving into and talking about and pulling apart some of the individual stories. 
But you talked earlier about one of your themes for the year. I think one of the big things that will run through elections this year is personalities. I think very often these elections, instead of popularity of the party, it's almost in this this year, I think, in particular in the US would be one of the big examples of this, is how people view the incumbent leader will be a fact then whether they vote for a certain party or not. I think that the, the the separation of party and personality this year will be virtually almost non-existent in my opinion. So how people view the leader will be how people will vote for a certain party or not. Um, and and you have agree. some of the biggest political personalities in the world facing election this year, because I think if you asked people to name high-profile politicians from any country in the world, I think Modi would be on the list, and I think Donald Trump would be on the list, and both of those people are on the ballot this year. Yeah, and, you know, I, I think it was 1992 was the last time the UK and the US both had general elections in that year. I certainly am struggling to think of a competitive elections in the UK, U, U, UK, US, the European Parliament, well, European Parliament's not been around for that long, but suddenly US, UK, India and Indonesia all being held in the same year. Strap yourselves in, it's going to be a bumper for political year. Do you have any other countries that, well, we've only talked about scheduled elections, but if a country would go to the polls, do you see any snap elections being called this year, which will further complicate our schedule? <laughs> Possibly, possibly. I think I've got sort of um, four potentials. First one, I think we're constantly at the moment on Canadian election watch. It wouldn't surprise me if we end up with a Canadian federal election at the end of this year, mainly because it just tends to be how minority governments run. And if, if we were going on history, we'd be overdue one. So potentially Canada. Second, Germany. Um, recently, just in the last few weeks, the FDP has internally voted on whether it supports the continuation of the federal coalition. They voted 52 to 48 to remain, um, but on quite a low turnout. So it wouldn't surprise me at all if that poll is repeated later in the year and if they get a different result and the German government collapses. Third, Netherlands. There's a chance, I think, that they fail to elect a government at all and decide to go back to the polls to try and resolve it. And then fourth, I wouldn't rule out Spain. Um, I know that our politician of the year last year, Pedro Sanchez, managed to form a government, but he faces an immense uphill battle to try and maintain this fractious coalition. And it wouldn't surprise me if there's a big issue with that, because I think some of the support, particularly from the ultra nationalists in Catalan is pretty fickle um, and his majority is so slim that if one or two of those parties decide to vote against him in a confidence vote the government comes to an end and there's certainly as we proved after the Fed, after the general election there isn't a majority on the opposition either so you'll be kind of left with no choice so it wouldn't surprise me if Spain is maybe on the radar as well but what about you Chern? Uh, certainly, we'll come to a question, one of our political predictions is whether can whether uh, it's related to Canada. But yes, we are on constant Canadian election watch. So I would not be surprised if Canada, you're right, it will call an election. Germany, of course, is also was one of my other ones as well, because uh, Germany, of course, it's no secret that the Social Democrats have been performing absolutely terribly in opinion polls. And in particular, the FDP will be feeling a sense of deja vu after they support the last time they were in government between 2009-2013, they fell out of the electoral threshold in 2013, and they're polling awfully close to the 5% threshold once again. The, the, the thing is, is though, I think when it was, Mer when it was Merkel then in charge in 2009-2013, the government was in a lot stronger position in the opinion polls. This German government is incredibly unpopular. And I think I saw a poll that definitely more than 50%, maybe even 60% of Germans want an early election. So I don't think there'll be the same punishment of the FDP if it collapses this government early. And of course, we've got form of Gerhard Schroeder, Willy Brandt. Of course, their government's falling early and paving All the way Democrats for CDU opposition. All social Democrat chancellors. So maybe history might repeat itself. Um, on the other two countries, um, you are one of Spain, I... I think 
on Spain. I'm less For the certain. record, I think Spain's unlikely. It's more, it's just going to be on my radar. I think that's a good way to phrase it. And particular with Junts, which is probably much more centre-right on the economic scale and much more hardline on the Catalan nationalists there. I think another country I will put on your radar is Denmark. Because now we've had Meta Fredriksson, the, there is constant conversation of who will be the NATO Secretary General. And in particular, they're looking towards a woman. And who is one of the few women in heads of government meetings who are not necessarily as, you know, as a Russia periphery country like Kaya Kallas, who might be too hawkish, but who might also be a European country which might be more willing, might be more engaged on the Russia issue. I think Metro Fredrickson is in unique position. She has been prime minister since 2019. She leads a unique government, a grand coalition in Denmark. If she goes to become NATO secretary general, even more, I think that government could be in more peril than it is currently. So I think that could be something to watch as well um, as a government that could potentially fall as well. And something to keep on my radar even more is the fate of the Swedish government, because there has been a lot of conflict between the liberals and the far-right social de- Swedish Democrats that are currently in, in the same governing arrangement. Mm. And the polling now of the social Democrats is off the charts. Exactly. Uh, Matt, it seems Swedish, pe- uh, Swedish people seem to have gotten some biased remorse about removing Magdalena Andersson as prime minister. So I think... To, so that's what probably will save this current government, knowing that in Sweden they probably be voted out. But I think in Denmark, I would add as a list of countries that I would keep a watch for the possibility of the government falling. Do you agree with that Denmark assessment, Sam, by the way? Yeah, I, I think you're right. I mean, I think Meta Fredriksson's relationship is one of the big reasons why this government was able to be formed in the first place, because a lot of people thought that forming a relationship between the Social Democrats and the Moderate Party was going to be ideologically challenging. But I think her personal ability as a politician has been the glue that has held that together. So if you remove her from the equation, what happens next? So I think I think that's a great one. And of course, we come to our perennial countries of Bulgaria and Israel. I think Israel would be a bit harder to hold an election given current circumstances. But we haven't had a Bulgarian election for a while, have we, Sam? No, I think one's one or two is overdue this year. All right. So in closing out, Sam and I have both seen four questions we're going to ask each other. We sort of talk about the politics of each of the four countries we talked about, but we'll come and revisit these answers in 12 months' time. Um, and these are four political... When we'll inevitably have egg on our face. Well, one of us will definitely will. So let's talk about four the, the four questions I have. So the Netherlands... What is one of the countries is when and who will be part of the next Dutch government? Because as of time recording on the 7th of January, we have no answer. So Sam, what do you think? I'm going to say that I think we won't have a new Dutch government by the end of 2024, either because those negotiations continue into 2025 and end up becoming quite a marathon Belgian style negotiation, or because they decide there is not an option and they need to hold a new election. So I, so for viewers' context, Sam and I have not told us our opinions of which of which is likely to happen. This is our genuinely held opinions. I think there are two options in, Bel- in the Netherlands. One is an early election. I do agree with you. I think that the difference between a new social contract and Gertwilder's PVV is a bridge too far to be... To, to come together and therefore a new election will be needed. But I also see another option is potentially uh, outside smaller party becoming prime minister in which they can all support. Uh, I'll, maybe not the Mario Monti technocratic government we see in Italy, but some kind of different arrangement that so long the PVV and Geert Wilders no longer becomes prime minister, but uh, that could hold. But that will require Geert Wilders giving up the prime ministership. And I just can't see that happening. So particularly given how well the PVV did. So I think those are what I think could happen. I think no government is more likely to be the case. So we're aligned there. So Sam, if a government is more, we'll both get egg on our faces then. Mm-hmm. Um, the next question is probably the one in which I have changed my answer internally about five times. But 
if you were to put on the spot right now, who do you think will be president of the United States when we do our review podcast? I, I honestly can't i i honestly can't call it i wrote down just for transparency i wrote down that i think that joe biden will just win the election narrower than 2020 but i just can't i just don't i just can't commit myself to saying it because i think the chances of trump winning are so high that i, I yeah i don't know I, i'm gonna say biden i'm gonna say biden but honestly I would not be surprised in any way if Donald Trump won it. So I, I can't call it. So I think for 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 edging sake, I'll say Donald Trump, because I just think that if I just look around the world and anti-incumbents being kicked out, in the US economy might yeah. be performing well, but it also faced massive inflation as well. I just think the anti-incumbency move is been um the only thing that drew me to Biden was the fact that we saw four years ago a critical mass of people. Crucially, Donald Trump has a ceiling of support. And the, what will determine whether Donald Trump is president again or not is whether the Democratic base and independents are energised enough to come out and vote. Because Donald Trump can't win more votes than he did in the last two cycles. So really, it's not on Donald Trump whether he wins this election. It's on the other side. So... That's why it's so difficult, I think. I, I think that's a fair assessment. And we'll find that out. So that's a hedge bet from each of us. We're genuinely not sure. I think the next question is a little bit more certain. Is will Justin Trudeau remain Prime Minister by the end of 2024? I think... I, I put not. I think Justin Trudeau won't be the Prime Minister by the end of 2024. I think it's more likely to be through an election. So here's what I think. Than anything else. I but, think he's more likely to remain prime minister than you. And the reason is, is that the Liberal Party right now is polling in the absolute doldrums. There's, they're polling like what? Between 25 and 30%. The Conservatives are polling high 30s. So that would mean that the Liberal Party, there's no reason for Justin Trudeau to corner the election. So it will depend on the new Democrats who are in this confidence and supply arrangement. And if an alternate world, even if they bring the government down, but will bring either a very strong conservative minority or conservative majority government where they will have no influence, why on earth would they call an early election and reverse many of the policy gains they've been able to establish through the confidence and supply agreement? So on that basis, I think they have an interest in not collapsing the government and the liberals, I just don't think are nasty enough in government to knife they're a leader who has brought them to election three times and who is a proven campaigner. So that's why I think Justin Trudeau has a relatively good chance of holding on. And that's why I think, although I would not be surprised if the Canadian election is called this year for reasons outside, you know, there's a big scandal coming over. I would not be surprised if the government hangs on for that reason. Yeah, and remembering that the reason he called the snap election last time was because he thought he could win it. Whereas crucially now, I think he would bet that he wouldn't and, win it. And what happened last time around? Did he win a majority government from, from calling a snap no. election? No. Right, final question. Well, now, this is probably going to be... In, in thinking about this, I didn't want to say who was going to win the next UK election because I think the, the signs are pretty obvious who's going to win the next UK election. So, I have a question for you, Sam. When is the UK election going to be called? Because that is actually under the prerogative of Rishi Sunai. And two, the interesting question I thought is, can Keir Starmer win more seats than Tony Blair did in 1997 when he won his first landslide victory, defeating John Major in that election? And for viewers, um, for, viewers uh, for, for context, Sam, in that election, Tony Blair won 418 seats in that election. So... That is the question. Can Keir Starmer beat 418? I'll answer the second question first. I think no. Can he? Maybe. Will he? Probably not. Um, I think the context at the moment is such that people don't want to vote for the Conservatives, but I think less so than 1997. They don't actively want to support Keir Starmer as Prime Minister. I think that's the crucial difference. Um, between now and 1997. So I don't expect the Labour Party to be in the 400s. 
um, also the electoral math has changed significantly because the SNP were winning five, six seats. Now, they're, even at their worst days, they're going to be winning 20, 30 seats. So it's a completely different landscape. So that's my answer to the second question. First question, I expect it to be late October, early November, mainly because I think what the timeline will go as such is that they will return from recess after the summer, the election will be called, party conference season will happen and will be like the landmark campaign event for the election, a big fundraising campaign. You'll have two or three more weeks and there'll be the general election. So that's what I sort of expect this to look like. But crucially, Rishi Sunak did not rule out explicitly an election taking place in the first half of the year. And I think there is one thing that could change that, which is if something happens to block the Rwanda policy again, I think Rishi Sunak could call an election on Rwanda. But it just won't be about Rwanda, I reckon. Um, yeah. Oh, no. No, 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 no. But he will use that as the reason to call I just her. think the state of the Conservatives meant that we're not going to look at an election in the first half of the year. I sort of, I just think leaving it too late as well, given how unhappy a lot of people were about drudging to a November and December poll, particularly if they disliked the government, I just don't think he'll leave it that late. I think September, October, maybe August, although I'm less certain about August, certainly September and October, certainly after Tory party conference, is much more likely to take place uh, for a UK election to take place then. So that's what I think. And I think on the issue on whether Blair, on whether Labour can win 418 seats, I think that is correct. I think Labour will not be able to reach that. But I also do think the Conservatives has a high chance of falling below the 165 seats that they won in the 1997 election because I think now there's a lot more information about tactical voting. And a lot of voters, they know how who is the anti-Tory candidate or sort of... And the Lib Dems are not the same force that they were in 1997. Exactly. So whilst they, But the SNP are a much bigger force, which will help Labour's chances of winning. But I think the Lib Dems could win... A few seats in that southwest where traditionally they were strong they were wiped out in the coalition years but i think they could do strongly again in these areas um would you not agree because of the extent of anti-tory tactical voting and labor voters voting for the liberal democrats more than anything else well an absolutely fascinating year ahead churn but I don't particularly look forward to December 2024 when we look back at these predictions and see that all of us were wrong. So, well, I suppose one of us is going to be right on the US election, um, but we'll have to see for the rest. And one of us will be right on the Canadian election as well. Oh, so very true. Very true. So listen throughout the year and find out who is going to be ahead at, at the end of 2024. But for now, that is it for the latest episode of Ballot to Talk About. Do join us again next time in two weeks' time when we'll be reviewing the election results in Taiwan and Bangladesh. And as always, we'll continue to keep you up to date on the world of politics and elections from around the world. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at, at ballot underscore talk. And please do leave us a rating or review or simply tell your friends about us. You can also email any feedback or comments to ballot to talk about at gmail.com. My name is Chen Han, and until next time, we will speak to you soon.